Welcome to 2819. I'm Sandra Dimas. And I'm Daniel Almaguer. And today's topic, we're going to be addressing the question that we actually get from a lot of viewers, and that is, how do we know the Bible is credible? That's right. In Everyday Apologetics, we'll hear from Travis Campbell on the reliability of the Book of Acts. And in Science Faith Connection, Jeff Swerink will talk with Ken Keithley on where does science affirm the Bible? First up will be Culture Talk. Sandra will be interviewing Ken Samples on the question, is the Bible reliable? So let's go ahead and check it out. Now it's time for Culture Talk, where we talk about culturally relevant topics you can use to start conversations about your faith. And I'm joined today with philosopher and theologian, Ken Samples, thank you for joining us. Hi, Sandra. We're gonna be talking about a question that came in from one of our viewers. So we get questions from social media, yep. and they wanna know, is the Bible reliable? Don't just say yes, though. <laughs> Give us some, some more meat to that. Um, so just from a skeptical perspective, um, some people will want to know if they're Christians, they, they want to know if the Bible's reliable just from their journey to faith to kind of strengthen their faith sure. um, and to help them engage with others. And those who are not Christians, that's going to be a question yeah. they're going to wonder, why would I trust this, this old book written yeah. by men thousands of years ago? Yeah. Um, so how would you begin to address such a question? I would say that we have an ancient book, mm -hmm. but we live in the modern world. Mm -hmm. And there are challenges. Uh, in the ancient world, there were no Xerox machines. In the ancient world, uh, writing was expensive and uh, it was a premium. Mm -hmm. the, the first paper was papyra. It could disintegrate if it wasn't placed uh, in the proper place. So many books and manuscripts that were written in the ancient world, Sandra, uh, have not made it into the modern world. Uh, I, I think particularly, for example, St. Augustine talked about Cicero's Hortensius, and he said that turned him on to philosophy and mm -hmm. set a fire under him. It's disappeared. We, oh, don't, wow. we don't have a copy of it. Interestingly enough, when it comes to the New Testament, we have an abundance of manuscripts that have survived into the modern world. So in terms of uh, the number of manuscript copies, uh, we could say the New Testament is the best attested document of antiquity. Mm. Now that doesn't mean the Bible is right, it doesn't mean the New Testament is correct, but it does mean that we have a lot of manuscripts that we can examine and they go back a long way. I mean, we have papyra manuscripts of of maybe from the second century. We have codices. Those would be more like your book type mm -hmm. uh, that contain sometimes all of the Old Testament or all of the New Testament, go back to the third, fourth, fifth centuries. So in terms of uh, manuscript analysis, the more manuscripts you got, the better you better position you're in in terms of being able to say hey we we can trace this we can mm -hmm. track it in that sense i think it's it's really good evidence yeah and and so i one i think that's just so impressive to think of the how difficult it was to not only write but yeah. then to make sure that the writings were saved and to last for so long. Yeah. So the fact that they've lasted for so long, like you've said, it doesn't mean that they're reliable, but it does right. show this long history of them existing and th those can be translated yeah. um, to modern day English. 
which is great. I, that kind of gets you into the door to yes. have that conversation. But how? what can we learn from history that points to the yeah. Bible's reliability? Okay, so if we take that first idea and we have what we call textual criticism, mm -hmm. that's actually a science. It, it also involves art, but it, it is a science. And that would be where textual scholars would compare manuscripts mm -hmm. and they would look for, and as an editor you can appreciate this, there were copying errors in the Bible. You know, instead of epsilon iota, it was iota epsilon. They, they inverted the letters. Mm -hmm. So looking at those manuscripts, scholars can track them and find, well, which were the earliest? Mm -hmm. And do they agree? Now, if the manuscripts were filled with contradictions, then we would think, uh-oh, we've got a big problem. But we can, we can see that there are early manuscripts. I mean, there are particular groups. Islam, for example, says the, the Judeo-Christian Bible is corrupted. But because we have so many manuscripts going back so far, we can see that the, the Bible we have today matches well with the Bible of the ancient world, the medieval world. Mm -hmm. Another good reason to think we're in pretty good shape when it comes to reliability. So that's from a historical perspective, although you did say that it is a science, but what from science can we learn that points to the Bible's reliability? Well, I, I would say that textual criticism actually comes under the category of science. Mm -hmm. But let me, let me add this historically. Mm -hmm. We've got a dozen or more um, non-Christian authors, mm -hmm. ancient non-Christian authors, some of them are Jewish, some of them are Roman, some are Greek, some are Roman officials, some are writers, and they mention in the second century, uh, they mention that Christianity was growing. They, they talk about what they had heard about Christianity, for example, and they, they basically summarize and that summary is very consistent with what we know the New Testament says, that Jesus was a, a great preacher and a healer from Galilee. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it even says uh, his disciples claimed that he rose from the dead. Now, none of, this, none of this corroborates the truth of the New Testament or the fact of the resurrection, but I think it is a confirmation People writing and thinking in the second century said, yes, this is what we saw, this is what we observed, and their record corresponds well with what's in the New Testament. I'm not sure we could have more than that right. in the sense that if, if we had early writers contradicting, right. then, we'd, then I think we'd have a, a, a big problem. Wasn't there a shift culturally in when the Sabbath was acknowledge because I think that shift in in the culture points to there must have been a catalyst to shift the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. Exactly. So the Sabbath in the Hebrew Bible, the old what we would call the Old Testament, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. That's the day of worship. The other days of the week have no theological uh, or doctrinal significance. The early Christians started meeting on the, on the first day of the week, Sunday. Mm -hmm. uh, why did they do that? That was the day celebrating the Lord's resurrection. So what, what caused this change from the Sabbath to, to what we would call the Lord's Day? Mm -hmm. The only thing that they can point to is 
Christians saw it as a celebration of the resurrected Christ. Mm -hmm. I think that's one more evidence of the of the evidences for the resurrection. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that, Ken. You have plenty of books that we can point our readers to. Which would you recommend for a question like this? Thank you. I, I think without a doubt has uh, a couple chapters that would be very helpful. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. So if you would like to learn more about this topic, go to support.reasons.org and search for Without a Doubt. Is the New Testament reliable? Many skeptics seek to undermine the historical credibility of the New Testament and doing so undermine the credibility of the Christian faith. One book that's under assault recently is the Book of Acts. How do we know that the Book of Acts is historically reliable? I'm joined today by Dr. Travis Campbell, a Christian scholar, to help answer that question. If we can show that Acts really is a good uh, historical document um, that is generally reliable on everything it affirms about history, then I think that you've uh, taken one step closer to accepting uh, the general reliability of the New Testament as a whole. And also you strengthen your case for things like the resurrection because after all, if Jesus can be shown to have risen from the dead on a minimal facts approach, then what about a maximal data approach, as Lydia McGrew calls it, where we show that Acts, for example, is replete with historical references that have been verified. How do we know then that the book of Acts is historically accurate or is historically reliable? Well, the book of Acts, uh, whoever wrote the book of Acts, uh, was also the same person who wrote the gospel according to Luke. And so Acts is really Luke 2. Uh, it is the sequel. Um, and I think that, first of all, in terms of the dating of the book of Acts, um, I think it's pretty clear that Acts was written before the year 70 A.D., so I would date it um, in the early 60s, uh, before the death of Paul, before the death of James, and before the death of Peter. Why? Because those are the three major characters in the book of Acts, and yet nowhere does the book of Acts mention their death. Now, I know this is an argument from silence, and so critics of what I'm saying here are going to say, well, just because it doesn't mention the death doesn't mean it was written before. It's very hard to conceive of the um, author of Acts not mentioning their death when they're so central to his case for Christianity, when they're such central characters in his book. Why would he not mention their deaths if he was aware of them dying and how they died and so forth? Also, the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70 was such a piv pivotal event for Judaism and Christianity that it's almost inconceivable that the author of Acts wouldn't have mentioned that event, especially since in Luke 21, Jesus predicts the fall of Jerusalem and uh, that it eventually happened in AD 70. Well, some critics might say, well, look, uh, Luke is mentioning the fall of Jerusalem after the fact by putting that prophecy on the lips of Jesus. Remember, critics don't believe that God inspires people, and so... Uh, the Gospel of Luke was written after 70 precisely because Jesus is predicting it. But here's a question. If Acts was also written after 70, you would think that Luke would record the fall of Jerusalem or allude to it as confirmation of Jesus being a prophet sent by God. The very fact that Acts doesn't mention that strongly indicates, in my estimation and in the estimation of other scholars, 
that Acts was written before the year 70. And once you have Acts written before the year 70, and since Acts is a sequel to the Gospel of Luke, Luke also must have been written before 70, say in the mid-60s. And since Luke is generally considered to be the third gospel, that means Mark and Matthew also must have been written earlier. So the early dating of Acts places all of that gospel material within the first 20 or 30 or 40 years at the most, years uh, within Jesus' death um, and within the first generation of the um, apostolic college. Now, beyond all that, there's strong internal and external evidence that um, the book of Acts is historically reliable. And here I would recommend a book by Colin Hemer entitled The Book of Acts in the Setting of Hellenistic History. Also, Craig Keener, in his four-volume commentary on Acts, uh, notes time after time, both Keener and Hemer note time after time in which the book of Acts is vindicated by archaeology. Luke gets it right every time that we've been able to check him out. My favorite example is in Acts 18, we have Paul going to Corinth, and he's met up there by two characters known as Priscilla and Aquila. Well, Priscilla and Aquila, were, it was, we were told, had to flee out of Jerusalem because of a ban on Jews in Jerusalem. Suetonius tells us that uh, in the days of Claudius Caesar, Claudius put a ban on Jews living in the city because a controversy broke out, riots broke out over the identity of one named Christus. So we have what apparently was a debate going on over the identity of Christ in Jerusalem, and thereby all Jews were sort of exiled from the city. They were expelled from the city, and Priscilla and Aquila were two Jews who fled to Corinth uh, during that time. And so Acts 18 is corroborated by Suetonius. Also, we have, we have an archaeological discovery mentioning the fact that Gallio was proconsul in Achaia uh, at the time that Paul was living in Corinth. In fact, uh, Gallio presided over um, a trial that Paul was a part of. And it's all recorded for us there in Acts 18. And so the very fact that Luke gets it right time and time and time again in Acts indicates that we can trust even what he says that hasn't been corroborated. I'll say one more thing. What is more important to Luke? The life of Jesus or the life of the apostles? Well, to ask the question is to answer it. Clearly the life of Jesus is more important. And so if Luke is this meticulous in recording all these events in Acts concerning those that are less important, how much more so can we trust him when he's talking about the life and teachings and events surrounding Jesus' life, which admittedly can't really be all that corroborated because Palestine is a far more localized and um, separated area than the various areas that Paul is traveling to around the Middle East. Hello, Jeff Zwerink. Welcome back to Science Faith Connection, the segment of our show where we explore important scientific and philosophical ideas and see how they relate to the truth of Christianity. Today, I'm joined by a friend and a colleague, Dr. Ken Keithley, and we are going to investigate whether the Bible is a credible source. Ken, good to have you here today. Always enjoy talking with you. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. 
So there's a, a, just a kind of a big question out there. Is the Bible something worth listening to? Is it credible? And I know in my history in evangelism and talking with people, the idea of the Bible being something worth listening to has changed a lot over the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways that people weigh in on that is whether it has scientific credibility. So why, why do we even care about whether what science has to say about things if the Bible is self-authenticating as we, we like to talk about? Yeah, that's a great question. And specifically as it relates to science. I mean, we can talk about the Bible and morality, the Bible and history, but you're asking about the Bible and science. And I think that we can make a very good case that the Bible, what it says about itself and what it says about the world in which we live, uh, fits very well with the findings of modern science. For example, the Bible says that there was a time when the world was not, that it was created. And it was created creatio ex nihilo, out of nothing. Well, that fits very well with, say, like the Big Bang hypothesis. Now, one does not prove the other, but it shows that they fit together, as I said. There, there's a congruence there that I think is quite remarkable. Or again, uh, the Bible says that God created the world very good and that he created it uh, very, uh, giving great attention to preparing a place in which uh, humans, his image bearers, can live. And what do you know, uh, one, of the, one of the more intriguing findings of the 20th century was what we call uh, the fine-tuning of the universe, uh, and that uh, this universe is um, constructed in such a way that it, it allows for humans to live here and to thrive. And of course, reasons to believe, uh, Hugh and others have, have, have written about this extensively, and they're writing some, about something that really does fit well with what the Bible has to say about creation. Uh, that, uh, you know, you have all of the creation, uh, the, the, the steps of creation in Genesis 1 to bring up to the apex in which humans are able to live here in this world. But it may be uh, fine-tuned, but it didn't have to be this way. It's contingent. Uh, and one of the things that I have found uh, interesting in my conversations with you is the discussion about the multiverse and about how, I mean, the, this universe could have been very different. And in fact, maybe there even are universes that are different. Uh, so there is a certain contingency to the universe. Uh, it's orderly. Uh, there, there is a regularity and orderliness to the universe that we are able to discern. Uh, and uh, scientists calls this, um, these things the laws of nature. Well, the Bible would call that God's providence, his faithfulness. And so uh, the Bible makes much about the regularity and orderliness. And, and this, this uh, regularity that the universe has uh, you and I are able to understand it to a certain extent. And this is an amazing thing. I mean, think about it. There could have been a universe created in which we were able, we're not able to, to, to comprehend it at all. And yet I think this is, speaks to the fact that um, a good God who is a lawgiver uh, created this world and then he created us to be reflectors of him in his image. So therefore, we have a finite capacity to think his thoughts after him. 
And so there is a, uh, an understandableness to the universe. And at the very same time, it's surprising. Um, you know, there, we can't just simply uh, think that God is this grand intellect and then just try to use philosophy and logic uh, to understand the world. That's what the Platonists did. What the scientific revolution is all about was the understanding, the Christian understanding, that God is not only intellect, in intellect but he's also will. He has a will. And so um, we're not going to be able to simply logically deduce how the world is. We're going to have to go out and look at it, which um, gave rise to the whole empirical method. Uh, and so what we find is, is that God is able to surprise us. So therefore, there are all these kinds of um, random things. There are these emergent properties. There, there are things that scientists discover that we think, huh, I didn't see that coming. That wasn't on my bingo card. But that's the kind of God that we serve. And so, yes, I think that the, the biblical presentation of God and the world that he created really does present a robust framework for scientists to do their work. And it is a framework that is remarkably congruent with what scientists discover the world and how it is. You know, I, I've always found that a fascinating thing that when you look at Christianity, the Bible describes how the world works, we can measure how the world works. And if God's revealed himself in scripture, God's revealed himself in creation, we would expect those to be the same thing. And you've articulated that very well. And, and, and some of those points, I'm kind of curious, how would you respond? Because there are people who would say, well, the Bible talks about, you know, okay, maybe there's a beginning, maybe there's an orderliness to things, but we've got axe heads floating, we've got a flood that destroys the world, mm -hmm. we've got all sorts of things, you know, the mustard seed being the smallest, and it really isn't. How do you deal with those things? If there's supposed to be this congruence, why are there these incongruences, if you will? Yeah, well, first thing about the axe head floating are things of that nature. What we're talking about are uh, immediate divine actions that we would other, otherwise uh, describe as miracles. The Bible itself makes it very clear that those are extraordinary things, that this is not God's ordinary way of operating. And so it isn't that we live in a world in which miracles happen on a daily basis. In fact, if that did happen, I mean, if we lived in, an, in a quasi-magical world, science couldn't happen because there wouldn't be a predictability to it. So even in um, the record of the Bible, the miracles surprise them just as much as it would surprise us if a miracle we were to see a miracle today. What a miracle, what a miracle is, according uh, to scripture, is that it is intended to be a wondrous sign, something that points us to something very definite and particular. And if you notice, um, like I said, even, you know, the Bible is, 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 had, was written over a period of uh, over a 1400 years, maybe 1500 years. It covers a period of time uh, that are many thousands of years. And so the, the, the times of, of immediate divine action, you know, those are rare and surprising in biblical times too. So I'm not too alarmed that we live in an open universe in which the God of the universe, if he intends to show us signs, which incidentally, uh, since I am premillennial, I kind of, I, I expect that at the end of the age, there will be more and more miraculous signs. 
Um, I'm not a materialist. We are not naturalist in the sense that we think that it is a closed system in which it does not allow uh, for the God of the Bible to do what he wants to do. And since he created it, uh, he can allow it to operate for millennia if he wants to, in which it just operates by God's ordinary providence. But those times in which he intends to reveal himself in a particular way, and of course, you and I as Christians believe that the ultimate miracle is Jesus Christ. When the, when the Son of God became flesh, lived the life that we cannot live, died on the cross, but then rose again from on the third day. I mean, I'm going to admit, that's a miracle. Dead people don't come back to life, typically. But we do affirm that God can do this if he, if he so chooses, and that he, the good news is he did choose to do this on our behalf. Well, thanks, Ken. I really appreciate your comments. You know, when we look at creation, we look at science and the Bible and whether the Bible is credible, we do find this remarkable congruence between what the science measures and what scripture has said for millennia before we even had the chance to weigh in on that. And yet in the midst of that, we also see that there is this God who's in control of it all, who can step in and do things that marvel and awe and wow us. And, uh, you know, we just find that fascination in scripture. You know, I would encourage you, if you found this interesting, want to investigate this more, go to reasons.org, search for Ken Keithley's page. It's K-E-A-T-H-L-E-Y. A lot of resources there talking about this and many other things that help you become more convinced of the truth of scripture so that you can go out and tell others about how much God loves them. We hope this episode of 2019 has helped equip you to share your faith with compassion and confidence. And, you know, I really enjoyed what our team of scholars mm -hmm. said, really, in helping us understand not only is there historical reliability, scientific right. reliability, reliability, and also mm -hmm. cultural. Right. Yeah, I love the way Ken Samples puts things kind of in a way that you can really, it's like very thought provoking, mm -hmm. but also makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, if you would like to continue watching episodes like this, subscribe to the show and then also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at 2819show. And you can find us on most major podcast services for the audio version of the show. Just search Reasons to Believe Podcast. See you next week. See ya.